Welcome to the Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries, an organization that exists to connect the Christian faith with the realities of everyday life. We come to you every Friday, and as always, I'm Scott Jones, your host. We've got a great show lined up today. First, we're going to talk with J.R. Roscoe, who works with the Missio Alliance, which is a group of ecumenical evangelical Christians who are really trying to rethink what mission in North America looks like as we become an increasingly secular and post-Christian culture. And after that, we'll talk with Aaron Zimmerman, Mockingbird favorite, president of the board, rector at St. Albans Church in Waco, Texas. He's going to give us his top five tips for preachers. So preachers and those who like preaching and have to suffer through it every week, uh, listen up. It's, it's really great, great insight and advice. And we'll conclude with Ethan Richardson, last but not least, talking about the contents of Another Week Ends. It's election season, and it seems like in both parties, there's kind of a protest vote, a protest against the establishment, against a kind of political system that seems overwhelmingly influenced by special interests and big money. It's interesting to note that big chapter in Western history started with a protest, a 16th century protest that wasn't intended to found a church or denomination or anything of that sort. It was an attempt to make the religious and cultural world a place where one young German monk could be more at home in his own skin. And isn't that really what we're all looking for? And I think that's a thread that you'll hear through the various conversations that I had with some wonderful folks that appear on the podcast this week. And now with no further ado, J.R. Roscoe. On the Mockingcast for the first time, J.R. Roscoe, J.R. That's that's one of the greatest names, Jr. It brings back like the Dallas whole kind of thing for me, and then Roscoe, like it's a it's a good name. Yeah, it's been following me for a long time. It was when I was young, I'd meet people and everybody'd be like, "Hey, who shot you?" <laughs> uh, and then it finally uh, went away, and then the TV show came back. So there was a little bit of a revival of. Uh, Did you watch meeting- the new show? I didn't see one single episode. I watched no. 10 minutes of it. Um, <laughs> it was very, like, this is my wife and I's theory on soap operas now. Like, things like Scandal or The Royals. Like, soap operas are bad because they have low budgets and have to film every day. But if you have a high budget with good actors and can shoot, like, film quality and do it once a week, soap operas become cool again. <laughs> so you... Okay. Just finished your D-min at Fuller. D-min. Yep. And what was, like, what'd you work on? Uh, So I was in a cohort that was, uh, the theme of the cohort was Anabaptist Perspectives and Missional Ecclesiology. Cohort was led by uh, Wilbert Shank. Wilbert was a professor of mine when I was in grad school, uh, also at Fuller, and he'd been a really important person for me, uh, kind of mentor. Uh, and so when I found out he was leading this cohort for the DMS at Fuller uh, and the um, particular, he was wanting uh, for students to take in their research, I, I was really excited. So I hopped in. 
So he is the guy, right, that said Christendom is Christianity without mission. Yeah, that's one of his phrases. Now, you're an Anabaptist. For our listeners out there, you're still driving a car. You're using <laughs> zippers. You're kind of, you know, it's people have stereotypes, right, about Anabaptists. Um, what I what, hear that. What, uh, how, like, what in that tradition has made you connect with it? Is that where you were raised or? It wasn't. No, I, I had no touch points uh, with the Anabaptist tradition whatsoever until, uh, probably until I took a class with Wilbur um, at Fuller uh, in 2004 or so. Uh, except accidentally, I did go to Malone University in Canton, Ohio, uh, which is comes out of the Quaker tradition, which I knew nothing about when I went to Malone. I um, spoke at Malone University once. You did? In the chapel. Really? Yeah. yeah. Oh. Well, it's a great place. And it didn't really have any sort of uh, discernible Anabaptist flavor to it when I was there from 97 to 01 it was strongly evangelical Christ-centered school. But um, anyway, so I got four years in and out of Malone and had no idea what a Quaker was or <laughs> anything like that. And so it wasn't until I got to Fuller and uh, I was encountering sort of the quote unquote missional conversation uh, and Anabaptism at the same time and noticing uh, key points of common reference, right? So those who have been steeped in sort of uh, this missional conversation would be really well aware of uh, a very strong critique of Christendom assumptions and characteristics and things like that and ways in which the church and our the theology which shapes the church uh, has been affected by Western Christendom. And Anabaptism uh, as a tradition that's always sort of called into question some of those, those central tenets of the Christendom reality. Uh, I saw a lot of similarity there. So so for me, I found a lot of resources within the Anabaptist tradition to help those of us who are thinking about what does it mean to faithfully follow Christ in an increasingly post-Christian, post-Christendom uh, culture. Do you feel like your story is becoming more and more normative for like Gen Xers and millennials where you actually find yourself rooted in a tradition that, I mean, Stanley Harawas says, you know, like traditions... You don't choose them, they choose you. But it, in some ways, like I find a lot of people now that are in their 20s, 30s, or early 40s are having to have chosen a tradition to let it choose them, as opposed to, oh, I just was raised this way. I mean, there's, it seems right. like there's a, almost an adult catechesis or conversion process where people find themselves in tradition. Yeah, yeah, I suppose, yeah, because, I mean, we're... Uh, so I'm, you know, 36, you know, wherever that sort of puts me, the top end of millennials, the bottom end of Gen Xers, I think there are people in my sort of uh, category, age category that like mm, haven't really, yeah, a lot of us haven't been reared in strong traditions and then have gone searching for them later in life uh, because it seems like everything is up for grabs. Uh, and those of us who don't really want to be listless or try to find something uh that gives us some handles to hold on to um both that like helps us reach back into the past as well as can help us you know gain some roots as we think about extending on into the future i see that as a something of a pattern yeah and it kind of connects with what you're doing i mean you're working with missio alliance which is my like one of the best names for a religious organization i think it's like the alliance um i love that uh 
And you're doing this Once in Future mission series, right? Once in Future Church or Once in Future Mission. Um, Once in Future Mission series, yeah. Which is, say a little bit about like what these conferences are. I, I went to one of them, which was excellent in Carlisle, I think, at a, at a uh, yeah. Brethren in Christ Church, which is a really good event. Um, yeah. So what's, how did these things come about? Yeah, um, it was really um, a lot of Missio's story is really just um, a desire to be responding to the articulated needs of pastors and church leaders um, amid the sort of realities that they're facing. Uh, so Missio Alliance as an initiative overall was sort of a response to pastors and church leaders saying, we really don't know where to go to have a theological conversation um, about the issues that we're facing on the ground uh, in in ministry uh, in our cultural context. And so Missio itself was sort of a response to that. Within that, there was another sort of um, uh, voice for, hey, like, while I occupy a particular tradition and find a home there, uh, I'm wanting to, like, arms with brothers and sisters from other tribes and traditions and at least listen in on um, how are they engaging the similar kinds of questions and issues that I am. So that's a theme for Missio Alliance overall. The Once in Future Mission series is a specific way for us to sort of get at that by uh, hosting uh, a number of gatherings and hopefully you know we've done a little bit of writing on our site and hope to do more where we would say, how do we, how does Missio Alliance as something, you know, an, an initiative that's trying to be centrally evangelical rather than existing within one particular niche, a more niche kind of stream? How might we be able to convene gatherings that bring people together um, to articulate what are the gifts of God, the gifts and the work of God within particular theological traditions that might be appropriated? by the wider body of Christ as we sort of face a new day in mission together. So the one that you were at in Carlisle was where we brought a focus on the Anabaptist tradition. Um, we have another one on the, which we're going to talk about on the Reformed tradition coming up. And then we would hope to do others, you know, maybe that would focus on like the Wesleyan holiness tradition or even the black church tradition or the Pentecostal tradition traditions, you know, all these things are all sort of um, poly. What's the word? Polyvalent or polysymphonic valiant. Polysymphonic. There you go. And one of the things is it fair to say, like, okay, one of the things I've really appreciated about the Missio gatherings in general is I've been to academic conferences, which are very much for academics specialized, um, generally pretty nerdy. Um, and then sometimes you go to pastors or church conferences, which are like add water and stir, like here's the ten things that will get more people in your seats or whatever. But it feels like this is a good integration of um, it's it's theological and yet theology for the church. So if people really want to go to a conference that's church oriented, but that's not just a sort of add water and star marketing campaign, but really is actually theological, shaping the theological imagination on the ground. I mean, I feel like you guys are carving that space that doesn't exist a lot of places. Right. Yeah, and and that's what again that's what we were responding to. Whether it's folks that you know exist in, in um, ministry context or church context, where they're not maybe connected to a particular theological tradition, uh, or they are, um, but they're not finding their denominations necessarily to be a place uh, for 
theological conversation about ministry issues. Uh, there was that sort of collective mm, asking for a different kind of space that would exist to help do that. So what you're articulating is exactly what we're after. We're, we're decidedly not trying to be academic. Neither are we trying to move towards the realm of sheer pragmatics, but asking key questions about um, how do we think about an encounter with God <laughs> Excuse me. Um, <clears throat> in our context today. So tell me about this conference in May. This is this is the reform, young, restless, and still reforming. My friend Daniel Kirk uh, posted something. Uh, uh, my name's Daniel. I'm a Calvinist. It's been my it's been fourteen thousand days since my last argument about Calvinism. <laughs> 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 it's funny it's good so tell me a little bit about uh you and i've talked about i work with of course this podcast organization mockingbird and we've talked about doing a live podcast there because a lot of our listeners would uh, really connect with that reformation idea of grace as one-way love unconditional love uh but it seems like sometimes when you listen to people that come out of that tradition it's the kind of um, there's almost like a combative voice overshadows this this uh, unconditional one way love uh, tone that has been really the gem of that tradition. Mm-hmm. So tell me about this conference in Philadelphia. Yeah. So, yeah, um, yeah. So again, so we did this one that was focused on the Anabaptist tradition in Carlisle, like a year and a half or so ago. And within that, again, so Missio Alliance is not an Anabaptist organization. Um, it's, it's more centristly evangelical than that. Because we occupy a little bit more of a neutral space, what we were able to do is bring together three denominations in the Brethren in Christ, uh, Mennonite Church USA, uh, and the Church of the Brethren, three historically Anabaptist denominations, as well as three significant churches that identify within the Anabaptist tradition. And we were sort of a, a convening entity. Right to bring them together and help them with one voice say, here are some of the key gifts of God within the Anabaptist tradition and give that voice. So we're trying to do something similar in May around the Reformed tradition, where we're working with partners uh, who would identify as in the being in the more broadly Reformed camp, uh, RCA, uh, CRC, uh, a number of schools, um, Biblical Theological Seminary, Fuller Theological Seminary. Uh, and, a, and, a, and a range of other fresh expressions, range of other folks that are partnering with this to say they're bringing their voices into this and saying, here's what we believe to be uh, some of the most important um, aspects of this tradition that should be, you know, um, or, you know, we just sort of want to make the boundaries that currently exist between people in our tradition and those in other traditions a little bit more porous and say, here, here are some of the gifts. Um, and there will be some critique as well, um, but like it's internal critique. It's people from within the Reformed tradition saying, here's where we think we're off the mark or where we're missing the boats or we need to put some um, some more emphasis and focus. And so the title, um, obviously it was years ago that Colin Hansen wrote a book called Young, Young Wrestling, Young Restless and Reformed, right? And then Austin Fisher wrote a book called uh, young, restless, and no longer reformed. And so we're just sort of playing off of that. There's a line there. And so in calling this event, young wrestling and always reforming, uh, that's really the key part of this for us, that as we started gathering people to put this on, 
the 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 key like what kept emerging was we've kind of lost this always reforming part of our tradition and so there will be a pretty big focus on that within the events i think yeah my teacher dal guter always points out that one unique thing about the reformed tradition was it didn't have like the osberg confession like the lutherans that every reformed church had their own contextual confession and so that it, it, it's a shame that that's gotten lost because it should be the most contextual tradition or one of the most like it, it, it but and yet like any tradition it kind of um uh it, you have some calvinists that treat things like the Westminster Confession like medieval Catholics treated the magisterial tradition. Like you can't. So I think it's great that you're opening up some breathing room for people to discover, rediscover something that is, is, a, is, a, is a, I think at its best, it could be a real compliment to a lot of the other traditions that are continuing to evolve and get new self-understanding in the kind of post-Christendom world. So I salute you. Yeah. Yeah, thanks. It'd be really interesting, right, to sort of look at um, everything that's happened since, like, within Western Christianity anyways, the, you know, like, various spinoffs of the Protestant in the 15th century, right, and how we might be able to trace how, like, many of those would be, like, and they're an always reforming part, right, and that, that some parts of the church weren't willing to reform in ways that certain sectors of it were. Uh, and so anyway, so I, there's lots of connectivity there. Uh, and even the registrations that we've seen so far, it's a lot of folks who, who are not coming from the reformed tradition, but want to be here to listen in, uh, and see what folks have to say. Well, the conference is in May, right? It's May three and four, May three and four. So I want to encourage all our listeners, they can register at missioalliance.com. Uh, missioalliance.org slash reformed, reformed event. Yeah. All right, everybody. And I will be there. And so if you want to, if you're a really big fan of uh, the Mockingcast, there might be something wrong with you if you're that big of a fan. But if you want to see <laughs> a live recording, we're going to get some interesting voices together. And it'll be a great time. And it's going to be a great conference at Liberty Church, one of the most exciting churches. I, I live in the Philadelphia area. And Jared is doing, one of, I would say, one of the most interesting expressions of church in this region yeah we're really excited to be jared's a great guy great pastor um and we're very excited to be hosted by them it's a it's a historic unique building unique space uh in downtown philadelphia we can't wait to be there well jr i will see you there in may and thank you for talking a little bit about this with our listeners thanks scott love talking to you guys Slipping, slipping, slipping into the future. On the mocking cast, he's a first time, long time, long time listener and long time contributor to Mockingbird, but first time on the podcast. The Reverend Aaron Zimmerman, rector at St. Albans in Waco, Texas. Isn't that like a hotbed? of evangelical Protestant Christianity? There are a Jesus moment, for sure. We're the home of Baylor University, which is a big Baptist school right on the Brazos River. Uh, it's where, so get this, talk about evangelical street cred. The cover art for Amy Grant's first album was photographed about two blocks from where I now sit. Wow. 
because Word Records started in Waco, Texas. So Sandy Patty, it was all a big deal. Now, okay, do you get many like of the Baylor type kids or students in your parish? Yeah, we're full of them. You can't throw a rock without hitting somebody connected to Baylor. We have faculty, uh, grad students, and undergrads. Yeah, for sure. Do most of them like? Is your parish kind of a part of their own spiritual journey? Like, do they come to you as Episcopalians, or are they kind of looking for a different kind of feel and like liturgical and worship experience and kind of wander into your tradition? Yeah, for sure. There are folks that are mostly not Episcopalians. We do get a, you know, a few of those folks. A lot of people move to Texas, and if they are Episcopalians, they get to Waco and they look us up. They'll, they'll wander in. But yeah, most of the folks, we just did a newcomer slash confirmation class and almost everybody, I'd say 13 out of the 15 people were not Episcopalians and all ages and walks of life of folks that have found themselves here for one reason or another. But uh, people that are you getting like a bonus from the diocese, like a company, but you're you're really padding the numbers. I I do. Well, so I, I do get a bonus and the way it works, I give them a small cut of that. So, you know, I'm eating into my profits a little bit, but I make it worth their while as well. So you get 20 bucks for the first visit and then, and that comes out of the portion the diocese pays me. And then if they tithe, then I get a, if you bring somebody, there's like a recruitment bonus. If you bring somebody and they tithe, then you get a portion of what, cause you know, the people have said that for a long time, the church is all about hypocrites who are all about the money. And I just embrace that. I don't deny it. I just embrace it. You don't get that in the Methodist Church, man. I mean, that you know, it, it, that's nice. I mean, this is—it sounds like this is the real selling point. I mean, that is going we, into the you know, churches are always have mission statements, and they talk about always has some reference to the kingdom of God or serving the world or something. But I just uh, use Jerry Maguire's "Show Me the Money." That's what it's about. Yeah. I love it. I love it. I love it. It's it, this is like a more liturgically sophisticated form of prosperity. That's right. And so, just uh, you know, disclaimer to my bishop. Uh, that's, I'm kidding. I'm totally kidding. <laughs> In case you don't get sarcasm. Yeah. It's so, all Aaron, on the my wife and I have liked your sermons. I've connected to some of them through Mockingbird. My favorite was one you probably did a year and a half ago or something. The Gospels for Sinners, where you were talking about the proliferation of study Bibles. Yeah. Like the study Bibles for left-handed ADD <laughs> people or for menopausal people with a sunny disposition or you, right. know, you had all these things the study Bible for is... people with more than five cats. Yeah. So I want to ask you, like, what are your five tips for preachers out there? we got a lot of preachers, including me that are regularly have to deal with the homiletical task as they say. And what are your top five like tips? Okay. So, and I do this um, kind of a more of a what not to do. This is more of a don'ts than a do. But you, you could you could flip this other way and, and have it. You could you know cast this positively. But I would say the first thing uh, I think the mistake that pastors or preachers make when they sit down is they don't kind of pause for a beat and ask themselves, how am I actually doing right now in my life? And uh, because you sort of you sit down in your study, you've got your Bible in front of you, you've got your commentaries, you've got your computer, you're going to start writing down your thoughts, you're going to just jump straight in the text. And you haven't sat down to think and consider, am I anxious? Am I really angry? Am I feeling incredibly overwhelmed? 
And I think that's important to do one, because if you're not in touch with your need, you won't be able to connect with the need of the people in your congregation or in your audience. But the other thing is, um, if you've got all this stuff that you haven't acknowledged, um, uh, and you're sort of covered in it and filled with it, it'll come out in your preaching, um, in perhaps unintended consequences. If you're coming from a place of anger or coming from a place of anxiety, um, so I, you know, I do this thing when I sit down and preach, I, I, before I write anything down about the text, I, I, I will literally write, how am I doing? Cause I'm sort of a verbal processor. So I kind of need to type it out and I'll say, you know, I'm, I'm feeling this and I'm, I'm thinking a lot about Jim Morris in these days or whatever it is. And emotionally, this is what I'm doing. I just kind of do the dream of conscience just to check in with myself. Cause all, we are all moving so fast. We're all moving a million miles an hour and we almost never stop to th- think, how am I doing? So that's the first thing I would say. Just get it. Just try to check in with yourself and know where you're coming from before you start to uh, dissect God's word. All right. What's number two? That's number good. two. I like the first one. What's number two? Okay. So the other mistake that preachers make is that they think that anybody cares about what they have to say. Hmm. And now there are people in your congregation who do care. There's all kinds of projection they got going on with you because of your office as the pastor or the preacher. And these folks would hang on your every word, um, even if you went up into the pulpit, hungover, unshaven, and, uh, you know, um, smelling like bleach uh, with blood spattered hands. You know, they would they they would listen to what you have to say. But there's a. So were you implying like a drunken murder there? Cause I'm not implying like, okay, anything. Drunk, not shaven. I'm bleach with blood. I'm thinking. Are you hiding a body or like what was that? No, just a lot of, uh, you know, if you're moonlighting as a butcher, that's more what I'm thinking of. Okay. You know, a drunken butcher. Yeah. Farm to table kind of butcher. Yeah. But you know, you drink your artisanal craft brewery while you're doing it. Um, so farm yes. to bottle to table. Yes. Uh, so the, the, you can tell when a, I, I, and what I mean by this. So when you think that people actually care what you have to say, when you begin with the assumption that people, are interested, you might get up there and say something like, in 1 Corinthians, the apostle writes, blah, blah, blah. And you've just lost, I feel, you know, like 30 to 60% of your audience. As Donald Trump would say, one Corinthians. One Corinthians. Corinthians. <laughs> Three Corinthians. Although they do say that in England. But. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Isaiah also, I think they say, which they completely get wrong and it's not how the Lord pronounced it, but whatever. Um so when people begin just with straight scripture, I mean, so I'll do sometimes where I'll read a sentence of scripture or something, but when they begin, just jump straight into the passage or I feel like you've lost an opportunity because um, there are folks in your congregation that have been dragged there against their will or maybe are there for the first time, haven't been to church in a long time, and they are already predisposed to tune you out because uh, you're a preacher. And I mean, the word preachy already has a negative connotation. Don't preach to me, fatso, says Cartman. So uh, th- there's there's people that will automatically tune you out the second you get up there. So I sort of feel like you can't assume that anybody wants to hear what you have to say. And I kind of want to catch people off guard. I want to um, uh, begin with something that's surprising or what they weren't expecting or whatever. Uh, you know, there's a reason Shakespeare always begins with a love scene or a fight scene. You, you got you to gotta hook people immediately. And you can't just assume that they're interested from square one in the Bible. Uh, Kierkegaard has this amazing thing when he says when you're trying to reach uh, a world out there that doesn't care, you have to start with paganism. 
It says begin with paganism. You, so, it, and for me, that often translates into some sort of cultural reference, either current or very old. Last Sunday, it was Louis Prima and Etta James, but it, it you know, it might be um, someone very current uh, as well. So, uh, I think that's a mistake. You you begin by thinking that people are interested in the Bible and interested in what you have to say. You kind of have to begin where they are, as opposed to where you are. So this that's is sort of the like the brilliance thing. of the TED Talk, right? Because like. Almost all of them are interesting, even if you're not directly interested in the subject, because generally the hook in the beginning makes the subject matter so interesting, even if you're completely unfamiliar with it and you think you wouldn't be interested. All of a sudden you're fascinated by someone talking about Indian kids and computers in the mountains or something. Yeah, and I think, you know, just as like a side note, I'm really interested to see what's going to happen with the people that are coming out of seminary in about 10 years and whether you'd be able to d- draw a rhetorical link between the rise of TED Talks and what their preaching styles would be like. Because uh, I think a lot of people today, the, the thing, the rise of TED Talks is a big black mark on Christianity as far as I'm concerned, because it was like they f- figured out how to do sermons better than we did. And a lot more people are interested in what they're saying usually than what we're saying. You know, they realize you have to keep it short. You have to get people's interest. It rhetorically and from a communication perspective, they're brilliant. And I, I feel like some homiletics classes would do, you know, preaching classes would do better to just watch a bunch of TED Talks and take notes uh, and, as opposed to um, some of the other more uh, tried and true and standard uh, methods of teaching preaching. Uh, but, yeah, I think I think you're exactly right. TED Talks have got this down. So what's the third? Okay, the third thing. We, we got know yourself, know yourself, and don't assume like people care about what you're Don't assume that people are interested. And then the, I think the other thing is um, I, I am a big uh, believer in um, uh, when you are preparing a text, check yourself before you wreck yourself. I just want to let that sink Booyaka in. Shot. Yeah. I like and, I, I, and um, watch that you are not automatically going to end with a facile application that misses the whole point of the text. So, and the and you the way this usually happens is that the text says something really incredible about God, but the preacher makes it about what you have to do. You know, the the text could be 99% about what God has done and mention some little human involvement in that, 1% human involvement. And But if you listen to the sermon, you think it's all about human involvement. It all hangs on application and what are you going to do? So, like, look more to the indicative than the imperative. Like the right, so classic God example, what, I think yeah. one of the um, most egregious examples I heard of this was once uh, I heard a preacher talk about the story from Luke's Gospel of Zacchaeus in the tree. Zacchaeus climbs up the sycamore tree because Zacchaeus is really short and he wants to see Jesus as he passes through Jericho. And the kind of the whole point of the story is that Zacchaeus is a huge sinner. He's called not just a tax collector, which means a traitor and a liar and a thief and probably uh, uh, kind of licentious. I mean, the guy likes to party. Cabo for spring break and Vegas for Christmas and that sort of thing. Probably parked in handicapped right, parking exactly, spaces. Right, exactly. Right, he will pull his Tesla right up in there and take up two handicapped parking spaces. Um, so that's Zacchaeus. The story makes him look like a really horrible person, which he kind of is. 
he climbs a tree because he's curious about seeing this new religious preacher who's coming through town. Uh, Jesus walks under the tree, sees him, and says, Hey, Zacchaeus, i got to come dine at your house today, which is an incredible thing to say for a religious teacher. It's like Billy Graham walking through town and, uh, I don't know, finding, like, let's pick a cliche, which totally dates me, but, like, seeing Ozzy Osbourne in a tree and saying, I need to, or what, whatever Ozzy Osbourne metaphorically represents at his, at his most sort of uh, garish, and say, Hey, I, I'm, I, I want to go hang out with your friends and be with you today. And giving like, tacit spit giving that tacit rat's head out, spit that rat's head out of your mouth. That's I right. Down with you. Well, That's right. Well, who's this? No, it's more. <laughs> it's more like, hey, do you have more rats? Where that came from? Let's go have lunch. There you, you know? go. I like that. Uh, and so the story is about somebody who does not deserve anything. Someone who's not has no spiritual credentials whatsoever. The story is all about Jesus seeing somebody who is a train wreck, religiously speaking and embraces him at least that's how i read it i think that's the headline for the story but um the the um i mean this is a guy who'd made a studied career of rejecting his own religious heritage and rejecting um uh yahweh for his own personal financial gain right and so so uh but the preacher that i heard uh did didn't mention really any of that but made Zacchaeus into some sort of Bible hero who had this deep spiritual hunger that led him to climb a tree to see Jesus. It kind of totally misses the point that it's really Jesus who says, hey, I mean, Zacchaeus, as far as we know, is just going to stay up in the tree. He just wants to see the guy because he's Danny DeVito and he can't see over the crowd. And and the, so the the person approached this text with the, with the lens of saying, okay, I need to make this about what we need to do. And we need to be like seeking Jesus and I guess metaphorically climbing trees to see him. And I was like, no, the, the point is not about what Zacchaeus has done. Zacchaeus was just hiding in a tree. He just wanted to see the celebrity as he went by. The point is that Jesus sees the sinner and calls him down and embraces him. And uh, so that's the kind of thing. So I, I would say. So we got we to gotta read the text. It's either going to be all about God or all about us. Uh, so I think, and that's not to say there are no, no texts that are about what we need to do. There's plenty of them, but I feel like the amazing um, insight that comes from our scriptures and from uh, Jesus of Nazareth, uh, the the big news is what God has done for us. Not that we love, you know, as, as the New Testament says, not that we love God, but that God loved us. And so we got, so we got know ourselves. Yep. We got, we got, don't assume people are interested. Like you got to, yep. you got to keep them engaged. Check yourself. Before you wreck yourself, stay God-centered on the text. Yeah. What's number four? Uh, so I think uh, the other thing that people make, I can't, I can't stand it when you can hear in the, um, in the preaching um, somebody trying to prove that they went to seminary. Now, I will occasionally do this but then i make fun of myself if i ever feel the need to bring in a greek word which is kind of important occasionally rarely i mean a little dab will do you a little goes a long way um but um i've seen preachers get up and they they'll drop phrases like the johannine community or they'll say the apostle you know capital a meaning saint paul and nobody has a clue who they're talking about don't assume you can't assume that people know anything about the scriptures don't use code words don't use like fancy seminary thing and this there's a there's a you, you can also have like 
uh, a progressive liberal Christian slant to this too. Anytime somebody has to prove to me that or, or reveal to me that they're more sophisticated in the text and they know that there were communities of Christians or believers who redacted, edited, assembled, you know, developed these texts. I just saw some YouTube clip where a preacher was on there saying, talking about the book of Joel. And he was like, now the group of people that edited this text wanted to communicate to us today. Like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, okay, full yes, disclosure. Interesting. Full disclosure. That was me. I said, there my, yeah. my sermon for him to critique it. That was me. That's a passive aggressive attack at you. I didn't want to out you, but it was, I couldn't let it slide. Um, no, but I mean, who, who, you're, nobody in your congregation cares if people edited the text. I'm not saying you should play fast and loose and the textual criticism doesn't matter, but is the, do you want to take some of your precious minutes in the pulpit? Like, can we just accept the text at face value and just talk about what it says? Yeah, nobody says my marriage was falling apart. I was so stressed out. And then finally I heard about text criticism. And I know. I felt, oh. this, I felt this huge yeah. sense of relief. Yeah. yeah. My wife just left me, but I'm so glad to know that, you know, maybe there's one, first and second Isaiah. Like, oh, that really helps me now. And maybe second Isaiah had a second wife that was really meaningful. And, you know, it's, <laughs> all right. So bring it home. Number five. What is the last thing um, preachers need to remember? So I, I would say the final thing is... Um, they, if you are writing a sermon and you haven't done anything that week for fun, I think you're going to be in trouble. I think if you as a preacher are not having some form of fun in your life, uh, engaging with uh, books you like, comic books, graphic novels, music that you love, movies that... Uh, cause you to have some sort of emotional connection to the story, to the art, to the actor, whatever, just movies that you love, um, whatever it is for you. So, and, and I, yeah, this is a, if, if you're not feeding your soul and, and this assumes, obviously we love Jesus and read the Bible and have a prayer life, all that sort of stuff. But I find that if, if, um, my, my most, um, I think the, because this is this this gets back to an early point about when you um, uh, uh, when you have to preach to pagans, which let's face it, a lot of our churches are filled with pagans, or if I can say pagan Christians. Um, if you're preaching to pagans, you have to begin with paganism, as Kierkegaard says. And if I, if I haven't dipped my toe in the waters of paganism a little bit, um, in terms of what's going on 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 TV, what's going on in music, what's going on in movies, what's going on in books, what's going on in the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, or wherever, if I have not connected with that somehow, I'm not able to connect to what people out there are thinking or feeling or whatever. How do you have fun? Oh, my gosh. So I listen to uh, uh, music. That's, what, that's, what I, um, that's where I really connect. Um, and um, I like – so cooking and listening to music at the same time. I have this weekly ritual of making pizza – I make the dough from scratch, and um, I have a pretty nasty burn right now to prove that I got a little too excited uh, last week. But uh, um, yeah, it, the if you, you have to open the windows and doors of your life and let the music waft in. That's what I kind of need to do. Um, 
And because for me, that's where I find really amazing expressions of the human condition, of what people are longing for, what people need. Listen to pop music with the mindset that this is how my congregation feels. That's what this is what I this is what I do. Uh, plus, I just love the music, and then it, it helps me. Connect. So, yeah, what I do for fun: music, food, and getting outside too. Uh, again, the 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 week the weeks that I'm like super hunkered down and meeting after meeting or meeting, I feel drier. The well is drier. But if I have gone running and listened to my playlist of Eight, late 80s, early 90s rock, um, plus some indie stuff thrown in there. Like that's, I find when I do that, somehow I've got more material to work with. It gets the juices flowing. So, and I heard so much stuff about in seminary for preaching and this and other people who kind of mentored me along the way, you know, for preaching, you got to stay in the word, keep your prayer life. And all that is totally true. But I found the other half of that is, is have, you know, there was that old thing. Is it Niebuhr that said you have to preach the word with the Bible in one hand, the New York Times in the other, newspaper in the other? It was Karl Barth, but I have a, I have a suspicion it was apocryphal. But, but yeah, sure. Who's Abraham Lincoln said it? I think. And exactly uh, Einstein. And so you, I, newspaper. I would say, I would say you need to preach the word with the Bible in one hand and kind of in your own personal engagement with stuff you love and the culture in the other. The Bible in one hand and the iPad. Well, you could just have the iPad and split screen and go Bible and whatever else. That's right. That's right. Well, Aaron, thank you. Uh, this yeah. has been stellar. And uh, if people can find your sermons on your church website, right? Yep. org, And just go to Media Sermons. We're also, the podcast is on iTunes, St. Albans Sermons. Thank you so much. And we'll hope to have you back again soon. Thanks, Scott. All right, back on the podcast, Ethan Richardson, sitting in for David Zoll, the animating force of the zeitgeist of Mockingbird. Or maybe David sits in for you. Maybe you're the zeitgeist. He, he does. Yeah, I am I am the animating spirit. I come and go as I please. And uh, Dave's just the incarnation of that spirit every now and then. Are you like the ghost of David's head, like like Jacob Marley, like? David, look at all the things you you have to write. <laughs> look at all the posts. Yeah, I am. I'm the accuser. I like that. Yeah. It worked well um, in Job. Yeah, it did. It did. It worked so well. Something I, w- I just wanted to talk about for a second. Jimmy Fallon is now doing Bernie Sanders. Have you seen it? No, I haven't seen him do it, but... You think it's better than um, Larry David? Yeah, Larry David. Uh, I do and I do. Okay, so here's my theory. Saturday Night Live did a sketch called Burn Your Enthusiasm where Larry David was doing (laughs) – But but when Larry David's doing Bernie Sanders, he's really just being himself. Right. He's not acting that much. I mean he's saying things Bernie would say, but he's just kind of being himself. Fallon has the voice – the facial gestures, 
tonally, like he has some of that stuff down uh, in better ways. But like in, a, in, our, in an interview with Howard Stern years ago, uh, two or three years ago, Jerry Seinfeld said, comics want to be themselves. Actors want to be somebody else. So I think Fallon's more of an actor than a comic. And yeah. so he's at, like, whereas, you know, the, the Bernie Sanders impression for Larry David strikes me as just another way to be yeah. himself yeah. in front of people. Are you an actor or a comic, Ethan? Which are you? Um, I think I'm an actor. I like that. I think I, yeah, I think, I think I would just need to be someone else other than myself. I don't need any more avenues to, to share my feelings. You've, you've got a wife, you've got a website, you've got. Yeah. Ad nauseum opportunities to be and express you. Yeah. And besides, I'm, I'm totally secure as a human being. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. Bottle that up and sell it, baby. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, that, you know, it's funny because basically every comic has got to be hoping either of the front runners win the, the, the election this year because Trump or Sanders, I mean, these are such imitatable people <laughs> with loads of material. The potentials are huge. Yeah. You've got a gold mine there. So Sarah Condon posted a piece this week on the site that reminded me of something Frank Bruni posted in the New York times, basically responding to Madeleine Albright, shaming everyone. And if they're not, mm-hmm. if they're a woman and they don't vote for Hillary, there's a special place in hell, she said. Right. Dante-esque. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it seems like uh, what, what, uh, what Sarah was responding to was kind of this, this taste of, of feminism, um, um, feminist thought that really doesn't leave a whole lot of room for liberty. Instead, it seems like um, the feminist job is to um, secure feminist thought. And, um, and that means electing a woman. And so what Sarah is getting at is the fact that like, this is, this is kind of, this is kind of opposing the liberal credo, you know, um, you're asking me to care about the right things rather than allowing me to care about whatever I want to care about. Um, and so, not only is it kind of opposing the the feminist mindset, but it's also just, I mean, thinking about where we're coming from in Mockingbird, uh, telling someone what to care about is pretty much surely going to make sure that that's not what they care about. Yeah, it's amazing. The anonymity and the hermetically sealed privacy of the voting booth is, imper- is not impervious to shaming and judgment. Right, right. It's not a safe space, as they would say. No, no, it's not. No. You also have something this week in Another Week Ends, our weekender, as we sometimes refer to it by its improper name, its nickname, uh, about the fact that we're hopelessly hooked to smartphones. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. So... One of our favorites is uh, Sherry Turkle, and we did a little series uh, months back. It was the Friday Sherry Turkle ticker, and um, Say that she's got a new fast. book out. Yeah, I know, I know, can't do it. Turkle ticker, Turkle ticker, Turkle ticker, Turkle ticker, Turkle ticker, Turkle ticker. Boom! 
it wasn't wasn't so good. It was uh, so, anyways, uh, Jacob Weisberg um, and the New York Review of Books is kind of he's got a collection of kind of techie books that came out this year, and uh, he's tying them all together, mainly focusing on uh, Turkle's new book, which is Reclaiming Conversation. And mainly what he's getting at is that there's a loss of um, empathy. He talks about a, a statistic that Sherry Turkle quotes uh, that there's a 40% decline uh, in empathy in the past 20 years among college students. And how do you measure that? I don't know. There's a 40%. Okay. That person 10 years ago would have been an 87. Now they're a 47. <laughs> right. 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 Yeah. I don't know. I mean, do you put like a suffering person in front of the test taker and ask them to, to emote? Um, I don't know. I mean, mainly what they're getting at is the fact that conversation is now so ephemeral and uh, that you're constantly um, trying to look both spontaneous and um, and curating this like permanent image of yourself that uh, we're we're con- we're constantly turned inward and we can't managing um, our brand. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, at the same time, she's also saying that, you know, there's, it's, it's interesting because she's spending so much time, uh, describing these, these characters that she's studied for years. And honestly, they're, they're us, you know, we're reading about, uh, these investigations of, of characters that really are us people who, uh, you know, on, on G chat, explain their frustration with a friend rather than having a conversation about it or someone who would send an emoji or a distracting link rather than, um, than kind of sit in an awkward silence. And my wife can write whole sentences in emojis and I'm so impressed by it. Like, oh I'm my like, gosh. And it really means something. Like I'm like, this means, she's like, this, the dancer is this, I'm happy, but this and I'm just astounded. It, it's like a it's like a new form of human intelligence, like being able to write in this symbolic. It's like we're going back or move, shifting over to a character based, like Asian, some sort of different kind of alphabet. <laughs> fascinates me. It fascinates yeah. me. Well, I mean, another thing that she's getting at is that we have the opportunity now to present um, not just a better self, but a a reaction to parts of our lives that catch us off guard or cause us to suffer. Um, and we can quickly send back uh, a text that is like how we wish we had reacted or how we wish we felt. But instead um, we give no time or space for the actual reaction we're having. So, so much of who we are is just pushed back down. Suppressed. Suppressed. Suppression. Now, you also have this piece that says that basically what everybody thinks about marriage and successful marriages is wrong, according to sociologists that are studying it. Yeah, yeah. So the wrong idea would be that 
if you are honest with your lover, you know, that if you're honest with your spouse and you say all the things that are driving you crazy and, and, um, and you try to set them straight and, and continue to do that for the rest of your marriage, that that's actually going to lead to a long, a long life for your marriage. But instead, uh, what, what this, uh, what this science of us story tells is that much like the way we see um, imputation working in Christianity, that if you see in the other person, someone that they're not, uh, namely um, a great lover, a a beautiful person and um, someone who actually fits the mold of your, your perfect partner, that that's that's the couple that actually makes it, um, yeah, so and, and we is, all know this. This is flip. It's so funny. I think David and I were talking about this a couple of weeks ago on the podcast. How the word imputation today, which is like the secret formulaic magic word of Protestantism, right? This is the real juice mm-hmm. for all Protestantism's problems. This is its crown jewel, right? That you're something you're treated better than you are you're looked at better than you are you're looked at as who you wish you were not the shambly self that's shame ridden and you want to hide in a closet like now we use that word only negatively why are you mm-hmm. imputing those motives to me but maybe this articles like this will get the term back into circulation the way folks at mockingbird use it in in this classic sense that yeah this power to unfold your best self suppressed beneath the shame and the guilt, like a flower opening up in Mm -hmm. in the light of of sunlight. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's tricky too, because, uh, on a horizontal level in our relationships, we have felt moments where imputation has been given and, and, and changed us. And then there are other moments, especially, I mean, reading this, watching, it's actually a video, an illustrated video that, explains this theory, but you kind of get the feeling that it could be interpreted as the power of positive thinking. You know, if you just, if you're just more positive about your spouse and, um, just saw her in a more optimistic life, uh, then things would work out. Okay. Um, but for us, like in a more descriptive way, it's just the way love works. If, if you love someone, you happen to see them in a light that they aren't, you know, you kind of, in the best of moments, you have these, um, these rose colored glasses. And that works best, right. In some way, like real imputation is always the fruit of reception. Mm -hmm. It's, it's, it's like a three tiered fountain, right? God's triune life graciously poured out into us and then spills over to our spouse or our friend or and then you know on the good moments that's spilling out into the world yeah and that needs the refreshment of living water like that yeah 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 it always makes sense on the receiving end all right man well there's lots of stuff in this edition of another weekend it's chock full of good material and i'd encourage everybody to ponder tomorrow morning is or this evening whatever tomorrow morning i always picture people looking at it with their saturday morning coffee like with the new york times or something like opening up their tablet <laughs> yeah so enjoy the fruit of ethan's labors on another week ends
and check out that OK Go video. It's amazing. Thanks, Ethan. And I will talk to you again, I'm sure, in the near future. Thanks for listening to this week's edition of The Mockingcast. If you like what you heard, please stop over to iTunes, give us a rating and a review. And as usual, you can find all the content we referenced on our website, mbird.com. Have a great weekend.